Hello, and welcome to another episode of Following the Way. I'm your host, Jason Dickey. On this episode of the podcast, we want to discuss the way in which the Bible brings so many different disparate parts of the narrative together through similar elements, themes, and ideas. So we're going to discuss that. Stay tuned. Thanks for joining me once again. I apologize for the short hiatus since the last episode, but hopefully this one can uh, be interesting to you all and continue the theme that we've tried to do of providing some insight or interest into the Bible and into the walk that it is uh, following the way of Jesus Christ. And specifically, as I alluded to in the introduction, what I really want to talk about uh, in this episode is specifically allusions to the cross. The idea being that by looking at the Bible and looking at some specific examples of the way in which um, God has orchestrated the world to constantly have been foreshadowing his plans and to show that he had an idea from the beginning of what he wanted to accomplish, um, we can look then back at Scripture and see what God wanted from the beginning, but only through what he eventually did. I hope that makes sense. The idea being that in the cross, in Jesus, in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we have the plan of salvation for the world, right? We have the opportunity for man to be forgiven of sin. We have the opportunity to have hope restored to us, the hope of resurrection, of overcoming death. And now that we have that mystery revealed, we have the ability to go back and read through God's narrative from the beginning and see how this was what God intended from the beginning. At each and every moment, we can see these themes and these ideas be brought up and be brought to the forefront of our minds as we read the Old Testament in light of the New. Um, I think this is important for a number of reasons, and we'll get back to that a little bit more at the end. Um, But if nothing else, I think this is a fascinating study that allows us to um, strengthen our faith. I have always found, um, I apologize for this uh, sidebar here, but I've always found that, you know, Bible evidences studies always fall a little bit short. Um, By that, I don't mean that there's not good evidence for the Bible. I just mean that if you don't want to believe in the Bible, you're not going to be convinced by an evidences study. And if you do want to believe in the Bible, the evidences may push you over the top, but you're probably going to be able to have enough faith anyway. Uh, Maybe that's not exactly fair. I just know that for me, they've never been of that much interest because... The evidence that has been the most helpful to me and the most strength faith, the faith strengthening for me is reading the Bible itself, is the cohesiveness of Scripture, is seeing that on every page uh, it is all written together and unified. And so uh, maybe keep that in mind as we talk about some of these things, that maybe this can be something that helps strengthen your faith, that from the beginning there was this plan, that these texts that are written at all different eras and all different times from all these different people all parallel each other and have this beautiful cohesion and foreshadowing God's ultimate plan for the salvation of the world. I find that amazing, and I find that to be of the utmost uh, value in terms of strengthening my faith. And so that's maybe the thing to keep in the forefront of your mind as we go through some of these examples. And as I said, we are going to look specifically at foreshadowing of the cross itself. 
Now, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time looking at all the examples. One, I don't know all of them. I'm sure that there are uh, a ton that I have not come across with. Um, and actually, that's a that's a good opportunity for you all to get in contact with the podcast. If you do you think of some good ones, um, some good foreshadowing of the cross that I don't mention uh, in this episode, please write in. Please let me know what, what they are, um, and I, I'd love to see those, and, and maybe we can uh, you know, do a part two um, on some of these other examples. But I picked three examples for us to look at, um, three things for us to consider that I found particularly interesting, um, particularly interesting foreshadowing of the cross. Um, and so the first one is in Genesis chapter 40. Now, in Genesis chapter 40, we pick up in the story of Joseph. Now, for those of you who uh, don't know or don't recall uh, your Bible history particularly well, that's fine. Um, But uh, you probably are familiar, I I would assume, with the patriarchs of the Israelites, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, You know, Abraham was the man who uh, traveled to Canaan first, who uh, had the covenant uh, bound, uh, that bound him to God, that God made with him. Uh, that God repeated several times through his life that he would be the father of a great nation and they would have this great land and through his seed, the children of the earth would be blessed. Those are the three big promises that we always think of uh, as a part of that covenant. And so Abraham is is that patriarch. Um, and then he has the son Isaac and the grandson Jacob. And Jacob has the 12 sons, um, two of whom were from his favored wife, Rachel, which made those two sons his favorite sons, Joseph and Benjamin. Now, Joseph, because he was the fav- uh, older than Benjamin, um, was the favorite son. Uh, that's kind of the implication that we get. And so Joseph, uh, because he is his father's favorite son, it draws a lot of enmity from his brothers. And to be fair, Joseph doesn't do himself any favors. Um, he seems to be a little bit pretentious, maybe. Um uh, maybe that's reading a little bit too much into it, but uh, having brothers myself, you can imagine how someone who acts the way that Joseph does would not endear himself to his brothers. But despite all those things, his brothers clearly go overboard because they throw him in a pit and end up selling him into slavery. Tell his dad that he was eaten by wolves. Okay, deceive his dad into thinking that he was eaten by wolves. And so Joseph is shipped off, finds himself in Egypt, is working uh, in Potiphar's house, um, uh, Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. He resists. She gets mad, accuses him of trying to seduce her. So he gets thrown in prison because uh, slave versus uh, uh, nobleman's wife. You know, nobleman's wife wins every time. So Joseph goes to prison. And that's where we are in Genesis chapter 40. So Joseph is languishing in prison. And uh, at that time, two people were thrown into prison with him. The butler and the baker of the king of Egypt. And so they're in there, and they both end up having these dreams. And so uh, when Joseph saw them that morning, they were clearly distraught because they had these dreams and no one was there to interpret them. And so Joseph says, well, God is the one that interprets dreams. What are the dreams? And uh, the butler says, well, I have this dream where there were these three vine branches, and it budded and it blossomed and it had all these clusters of grapes. And I took these grapes and I pressed them into the Pharaoh's cup and I placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph says, well, the three vines are three days and in three days you're going to be restored to your position in the, in the king's household. So the baker's like, hey, that sounds pretty good. Uh, I went in on that. So tell me about my dream, Joseph. My dream, uh, I have three baskets on my head full of bread and the top basket starts getting uh, pecked at by uh, the birds and the birds eat the bread. What, what does that dream mean? And Joseph says, well... 
Unfortunately, the three baskets are three days, but in three days, you will have your head lifted off of you, um, and you will be hung on a tree. Uh, specifically, it says in verse 19, within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head from you and hang you on a tree and the birds will eat your flesh from you. So then it's verse 20. Now it came to pass on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all servants and he lifted up the head of the chief butler and the chief baker among his servants. Then he restored the chief butler to his butlership again and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to him. Yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Okay, so that's kind of an interesting thing. But what on earth does it have to do with Jesus' crucifixion? Um, well, there's a couple similarities right off the bat, right? Three days. Jesus was in the grave three days. So that's interesting. Um, the butler had three days until he was resurrected, if you will. That he was restored from prison back to the king's house. Raised back up to a position in the king's household. Whereas the baker had three days until he was dead, hung on a tree. Which that language in and of itself is ominous because, as we know, Jesus was hung on a tree. And as Paul writes in Galatians, curses anyone who hangs on the tree, quoting from Deuteronomy. And so the idea is that Jesus bore the curse of the law because he was hung on the tree. And yet that language is the language used here of the baker. Okay, so when I was reading this and thinking about this, and maybe this struck you as I read it as well, it doesn't really fit, right? Because it says that the baker's head will be lifted off of him. In verse 19, will lift off your head from you, and then he'll hang you. Which most scholars say that that means that he's going to be beheaded and then impaled, and his body's going to be shown as a symbol of what happens if you don't take care of the, the responsibilities given to you by the king. So, you're like, man, well, it sounds pretty good, uh, but... I, I just don't buy it. You know, Jesus wasn't decapitated. That's a pretty big difference. It's like, okay, that's fair. And it struck me that way as well. Uh, but I started reading through my commentaries to see if anybody, you know, made this connection or not. And interestingly enough, in uh, the commentary by Nahum Sarna in the JPS Torah series, uh, his commentary on Genesis, he's commenting on verse 19. And what he says is that essentially... Um, the word there used for head being taken off is not the typical Hebrew word for decapit uh, decapitation. And so he says, and in fact, he points out that some manuscripts don't even have that word off in there at all. And that actually the Vulgate doesn't include that word. And he said, so it's very po possible that the idea here is just that his head will be lifted. Which makes sense because in uh, verse 20, it says that he lifted up the head of the chief butler and of the chief baker. So, obviously, the butler wasn't decapitated because he goes on to serve in the Pharaoh's household. So, it seems like that's probably the idea here. They're going to be lifted up to be brought to justice is what that idiom would mean. And so, the fact of the matter is that this actually correlates even better with the cross than what we first thought because... Jesus as well was lifted up and hung on a tree. And here the baker's head is lifted up and he is hung on a tree. And so the language is ominously similar. So why would God do that? Why would God foreshadow this here? Um, you know, for a long time when I looked at this these visions, and I remember studying them in Sunday school when I was a kid, you know, the idea is, well, this is just how God was going to get Joseph out of prison. 
Because the butler then remembers that Joseph can interpret dreams. So then when Pharaoh has a dream, he gets Joseph to come and interpret the dream. And then Joseph gets put in charge of all the things in the land of Egypt. So this was just God's way of getting him in the door to, to be elevated to the position that he needed to be in. And that's true. That is the way that God did it. But God could have done it a number of different ways. And God also could have given different visions to the baker and the butler. Yet God put these visions in the baker and the butler. He gave these interpretations to Joseph specifically because they do foreshadow the very pattern of the way that God works. So why does God foreshadow that here? He knows the Jews aren't going to understand it. He knows that no one's going to understand it. He knows that most people who are even Christians aren't going to try and look at Genesis chapter 40 and see the cross in it. Even though some might, even though that I'm proposing that we do, why is it that he does that then? Well, because I think if you make that connection, you accomplish a couple things. One, you show that God works in a certain way, and you understand the mind of God. That's the idea. And so God repeats himself through Scripture. He does the same thing several times, and there's different things you can look at about this. I read an article about how through the book of Genesis, you see the same pattern being established over and over again. And to be honest, the article is a little bit above my head uh, in terms of scholarly terms and stuff like that. But it pointed out specific terms and ideas that were used of setting up an altar in a new land and starting over afresh and said that that happened in the garden. It happened after the garden. It happened um, after the flood. It happened, um, Abraham did it. You know, And it pointed out all these examples through the book of Genesis where the same thing is done, this, this recreation, this effort for a fresh start. Well, the reason why all those things are there, the reason why it's repeated is because the more we see these images, the more we see these ideas, the more we can learn and understand about how God works, about how God's mind works, about what he values. That's the idea. And that's what we're seeing here uh, as well, that this is what God works. This is what he does. This is how he, he does things. And so when you do that, you can look and say, okay, three days, that seems significant. Hanging on a tree that's significant. That's part of the curse of the law. And you look at those things, and now you begin to understand. But it isn't just, you know, this sort of broad God working in patterns idea. I think that it's also a little bit more specific because of what the actual situation here. What we're seeing here is a servant who doesn't take care of his fundamental charge as the baker of the king which his fundamental charge is to make baked goods and protect them for the king, and yet he's letting birds eat them. He can't even shoot the birds away from his baked goods, which says that he isn't very good at doing his job. If he can't even do his job, and it's just a servant, just a servant in the king's house, doesn't do his job, and he gets hung on a tree, that's the exact same punishment that happens to the Son of God. And so what this does is, is it allows us to have an image, an idea of what the cross is about, of what Jesus bore for us. We're talking about the king's servant being put to death. And that's the way that the son of the king is put to death, even though he's not deserving of it. And it's the same death of someone who can't take care of their fundamental charge as the servant of the king. And that's the thing that, that happens to Jesus. So in this example, we see, yes, the patterns of God. We see the repetition. We see this effort for, um, you know, maybe this help in the evidences of the uh, accuracy of scripture, of building our faith and all those sorts of things. But I think we also have a little bit more of an understanding of the punishment that Jesus bore for us. And so I think that's part of the idea. So that's the first example. Uh, the second example is in Joshua chapter 10. And in Joshua chapter 10, 
we uh, it begins with that famous scene of the sun standing still in the sky so that Joshua can finish the battle against the kings of uh, Canaan. Um, sorry, uh, to, to, to provide the, the typical background, the, the idea and the context here is, so from the time of Joseph, um, Joseph ends up bringing all of his family into Egypt. They grow and multiply in the land of Goshen, the northern part of Egypt along the Nile Delta. And they continue to prosper and grow and um, multiply and all those sorts of things. They end up becoming slaves in Egypt. Then you have Moses risen up, who is the um, the arm of God, who uh, enacts the will of God to bring the people out of Egyptian captivity. He brings them all the way through to the edge of the land of Canaan. Uh, the people don't have enough faith, so they have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years as part of their punishment. And then, after all that said and done, Joshua, who stood by the side of Moses through most uh, all of those events, um, is put in charge of the people, and he is the one leading the conquest of Canaan. And so here we are in Joshua chapter ten, in the midst of this conquest of Canaan. Um, you know, Moses mentioned several times in Deuteronomy the wickedness of the land, how wicked, wicked, wicked they are. They do all these terrible things, these debaucherous things. This is God's judgment upon them. The Israelites will judge these people for God, all that kind of thing. And so that's what's going on. And so they come in, and this, this conquest is going on. And so uh, there's a specific battle uh, between the five kings of, um, the, uh, of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, all gathered together, and they go up to fight Gibeon. Um, Gibeon uh, had tricked Joshua into making an alliance with them. Um, and so because of that alliance, Joshua had to go defend Gibeon. And so they go into battle with Gibeon against these five kings. And that's, uh, God brings hailstones down to kill most of the people. Um, and then in the midst of that, uh, Joshua speaks to the Lord and says, Sun stand still over Gibeon and moon in the valley of Aijalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Um, so there's that kind of phrase in there. So that's, that's interesting thing that occurs. But after this battle, it says the five kings flee and they hide themselves in the cave at Makeda. And so they're there hiding in the caves of Makeda. Um, but when Joshua finds out about that, he says, go roll a stone in front of it, guard the cave. Let's go finish, you know, sweeping up all the other people that are running around fleeing. They go do that. They do the mop up work, finish slaughtering the army, come back to Makeda and they let the kings out. So God, so Joshua brings them out of the cave. He uh, makes them lie down, and he has all the men of war who went with them to each one of them put their feet on the necks of these kings to show that they uh, are in power, to humiliate these kings, to show that they are weak and that he is in charge. Um, and so they all do that to demonstrate their power. And then after that, uh, Joshua gives a little speech about being strong and of good courage, about how God's going to give everything into their hands. And then Joshua kills them, hangs them on a tree, uh, and leaves them hanging on a tree until evening, it says in Joshua 10, 26. Verse 27, so it was at that at the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees, cast them into the cave where they had been hidden, and laid large stones against the cave's mouth, which remain until this very day. That one's pretty crazy. The similarities. Hanging on a tree until nightfall than being put in a cave and stone being rolled in front of it. I mean, that's that's pretty similar to the things that happened to Jesus. And even more than that, the humiliation before the death, uh, the way Jesus was mocked, 
um, put in this false robe and the crown of thorns and beaten and slapped um, to demonstrate their power over this supposed king um, of uh, the Jews. And pretty, pretty horrific scene there. Here, the same thing happens. They put their feet on the neck of these kings before this happens. And so once again, we get all these same images of God's repetition and the way that God's worked, uh, works, the, um, uh, the cross, the hanging on the tree, um, waiting until evening to be put in the cave and the, the, the stone rolled over it. But in this situation, there's a couple things that I think are worth noting. Um, one, in how it relates to Jesus, in that notice that these are the wicked kings of Cana. These are the wicked people who God is judging. I mean, listen to some of the things that uh, Moses said about this. It is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you. Do not defile yourselves by any of these things, for all, for by all these the nations which I am casting out before you have been defiled. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of the, those nations, because these detestable things the Lord your God will drive them out before you. Worst of all, Canaanites practice child sacrifice, and there's alluded to it in that Leviticus 18.21, where God commands, do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech. So, I mean, you know, Deuteronomy 9.5, Deuteronomy 18.9 and 12, Leviticus uh, 18.21, those verses I just read, you know, in those passages, the idea is these people are wicked and God is judging them and bringing judgment upon them. This is the place where Sodom and Gomorrah was. This is where that sort of wickedness existed. And so God is sending in his people to enact judgment upon them. This is their judgment day because of their wickedness and their evil. And these five kings, because of their wickedness and because of the evil things that they have done, are hung upon trees and thrown in a cave with stones rolled in front of it. Jesus has the same fate as the wicked kings of Canaan that were being judged by God. Do you you get that? Do you see how significant that is? That Jesus bore that punishment. He bore that shame. He went through that for us. Pretty crazy. It's pretty wild. But notice some of the key differences too. The sun stood still in the battle before this before this occurred. When Jesus was crucified, the sky was darkened. These kings are guarded while they're alive in the cave. Jesus is guarded after he's dead. These differences in the idea being that in one case, this is a great victory for God. So the sun stands in the sky. This is them about to be put to death, so they need to be guarded to face their judgment. Jesus is sorrowful, and the world mourns and weeps over the death of the Savior. He's guarded after he's put to death because he will rise again, because he will be resurrected. It's pretty neat, pretty interesting stuff there. Uh, Pretty interesting uh, what it says here in Joshua 10. And the way that that correlates is pretty significant. One last example I want to look at is in Numbers chapter 21. So this is actually going back in time a little bit. Um, so this is during the wilderness wanderings, um, the time period in between Joseph and in between uh, the time of Joshua. Well, the, the time of Joshua's conquest. And so in Numbers chapter 21, we get this kind of interesting little story here. Um, basically, some of the Canaanites were defeated at Ormah. Uh, the king of Arad um, was, uh, was defeated. And 
the next logical step in the place, uh, in their journey to Canaan would be through Edom. But God told them they weren't going to uh, pass through Edom. Um, they weren't going to be allowed through. So they have to go the long way around. And as they're traveling the long way around, the people get upset. And so in uh, Numbers 21, verse 4, it says, They journeyed from Mount Or all the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So here is God who's been taking care of them, who's been feeding them, giving them water, miraculously taking care of them, even though this is their punishment. Keep in mind that the reason why they're still in the wilderness um, is because they're being punished. And so um, th this whole situation is going on. This whole thing is going through as they travel through the land. And then after this, they just start whining and complaining uh, to God about what's going on. Well, in chapter 21, it says, verse 6, So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks on it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was if a serpent had bitten anyone. When he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Such a strange little story. Um, one, Moses makes a graven image, which they were forbade to do. Uh, granted, this is at the command of God. Um, and the thing that saves them is an image of the very thing that's killing them, which is interesting. And then he puts it on a pole, and all I have to do is look at it. And the mere sight of this thing saves them from uh, the fiery serpents, which I think the idea there is that uh, it, it, it burns, like it has this poison that burns before it kills her. I think that's the idea of fiery. Um, so yeah, it's just kind of an odd little story there, and then it just moves on with the narrative. But what's interesting is Jesus himself references this in John chapter 3. So John chapter 3 is when Jesus is talking with Nicodemus, who is a ruler of the Jews. And uh, this guy kind of comes to him at night uh, to kind of ask him some questions to try and figure out what he thinks about Jesus. And uh, Jesus speaks to him as archaically as he always does about being born again. Um, Nicodemus is clearly confused. Uh, so Jesus explains it by make, getting more confusing. And uh, Nicodemus's response is, uh, how can these things be? Basically, I don't understand what you're saying. And so Jesus gives us a little mini sermon and he talks about how um, we speak of what we know and we testify what we have seen and you do not receive our witness. Basically, you don't know. You don't testify of this because you haven't received it. You haven't seen it. He said, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? He's saying, look, look, I told you, and I'm speaking to you in terms that you would understand, and you don't get it. So if I speak and explain it to you how it actually is, then you really won't get it. And then he goes on to say, no one is ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. Basically, no one's gone up to heaven. You can't understand heaven. No one's gone up there at all, except he who has come down out of heaven, which is the son of man. And then he says in verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
Okay, so that's interesting. So now Jesus has paralleled himself to the bronze serpent. And he's, it is in this context of you don't understand these things of God. You don't understand the birth that we're going to have, this resurrection that's going to occur, uh, this being born again, an allusion probably to baptism as well as the resurrection, um, all these sorts of things, you know, kind of tied up together. And uh, he doesn't get it. So then he says basically, you know, the Son of Man is going to be lifted up just like Moses lifted the bronze serpent. Um and then whoever looks on him is going to be saved. That doesn't really explain the story in Numbers 21 very well. But it does show us that there's a direct, collect, uh, a direct correlation between the fiery serpent and Jesus. Now, on the one hand, Jesus was lifted up when he goes to heaven. He was lifted up uh, to ascend into the high places with God. To be seated at the right hand of God. And we know that. But on the other hand, he also was lifted up on the cross. Jesus references several times through John uh, and some of the other Gospels the idea of being lifted up, uh, being raised up. And ultimately that is resurrection, but I think he's also talking about the glory of the cross, being raised up on the cross, which is what we talked about with the analogy uh, or with the vision of the baker, right? That he was going to be, his head was going to be raised. Um, it's the same sort of thing here, that you're going to be raised up, you're going to be brought up. Um, and in a way that is kind of dark. So to, to help understand or clarify what I'm saying, think back to this image in Numbers 21. In Numbers 21, the curse is the fiery serpents that come and bite them and kill them. The blessing is a fiery serpent on a pole that they look at that saves them. The curse is transformed into a blessing. It's the very thing that happens to Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Jesus became the curse. The very thing that saves us is the very curse that condemns us. Sin, death, the curse that is promised to us, which is the hanging on a tree, is borne by somebody else so that we can be set free. So once again, we have this connection, this correlation between this Old Testament story about the bronze serpent being raised up in Jesus. And what's fascinating about all these is that if you were just to read through the Old Testament, I don't know that we would ever think that those passages are about the Messiah. And in fact, some of you listening to this may think that I'm making mountains out of molehills by trying to connect these things. But in my experience and in my time of reading the Bible and studying it and listening to other people study it and looking, reading scholarly works and and all the time I've put in, in my life to honing this craft, which is understanding God's Word, what I've come to understand is that the Bible doesn't have coincidences. When you see this sort of language repeated, it's not happenstance. It's not just something that's kind of cool to think about. I think it's there for a reason. And I think that sometimes we are too hesitant to give credit to God and His organization of Scripture. Just because we're afraid that we're going to make a mountain out of a molehill. But in the process, we diminish the power of God and the way in which he has organized the word and brought it together to be cohesive. And I, that, that's really the idea that I want us to think about is the way that the cohesion of scripture helps unify things for us and helps us see things um, better and builds our faith and helps us to understand the plan of God. I've thought quite a bit 
um, about doing specific podcasts on Bible study, um, different things about how to study the Bible, and I'm sure uh, it'll be something that comes up again. But I do think that this idea of connecting some of these things to the cross is something that helps us understand Scripture, is something that helps us understand how we should study the Bible. The fact of the matter is that the Bible is not just a law book. It's not just a bunch of outdated laws and then some new relevant laws. The Bible is the Christian library. My brother-in-law is the first one I've I heard described it as that, but basically what he said was it's, it's the Christian library. It's law and it's history and it's geography and philosophy and poetry and prose and wisdom. It is everything. It contains it all. Every type of literature, every type of um, idea and the way it's organized and the way that it's written, it is our library. And the reason why it is our library and the reason why it has all these different types of language and all these different things in it and these different analogies and these different connected ideas all the way through is because being a Christian isn't about memorizing what we can or can't do. It's about developing our minds into thinking like God does. To see the world the way that he does. Poetry is um, a way of expressing an emotion or an idea that words fall short of describing. That's what it does. Um, It allows us to convey complexities that normal language don't quite allow. And you get that through the pace of the way it's written, the way things rhyme, the way words are emphasized, the way the language flows off your tongue as you read it and recite it and say it. All of that helps us to convey an emotion, an idea. That's in the Bible. That same sort of poetic idea of describing things in a way that we can understand it. History is a way of us understanding the future. Sometimes the best, the only way we can forecast is by looking at the past. I mean, I took forecasting classes in in graduate school. And, you know, whether you're doing armor modeling or whatever, what you do is you take data that already exists. And based on that data and accounting for certain variables, you project what future data is going to be. I mean, that's how you forecast is by looking at the past. History does that for us. By looking at what's happened, we can see what will happen. Um, all these things, poetry, history, law, all this stuff is in the Bible to help us think like a Christian should, to think like God wants us to, to think like him so that we can evaluate the world the way that we should, that we can put the right emphasis on the right things and we can approach life the right way. That's what the Bible is for. It isn't a law book. It has law. It is a library that helps transform our thinking. That helps show us how we should be. And hopefully these three, you know, kind of disparate parts of the Old Testament being connected to the cross of Christ helps us see that. Helps us see that God conveys different ideas in different ways. That the whole Bible is valuable. Not just parts of it. Not just things that we find more interesting. It all has value. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have favorite parts But it does mean that we shouldn't devalue part of the Bible just because we don't understand it. Whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, whether it's law or whether it's poetry, it is all there to help us develop our minds to be able to think like God.
that's what he wants. And hopefully, I've, I've encouraged you all to see that as well uh, in your Bible study. And hopefully, this can be something that is uh, helpful to you as you continue in your Bible reading. As I said uh, at the beginning, if you have other examples of images of the cross uh, in Scripture, I'd, I'd love to, to hear your examples. Um, I mean, you've got Abraham uh, sacrificing Isaac. You've got the Joseph story. You've got Jonah. You've got all these different resurrection stories, these different uh, crucifixion stories in Scripture. But if there's any that, that, that I haven't mentioned, I, I'd love for you to write in followingthewaypodcast at gmail.com. Contact uh, Twitter at followingway. Um, and, uh, yeah, contact the podcast. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to get your feedback. I'd love to interact with you all. Um, and you know, if we get some good responses, maybe we'll, uh, we'll use them on the next podcast. So I appreciate your kind attention. Appreciate you, you tuning in once again. And, uh, as always, I hope that this has been interesting and uh, I look forward to catching you next time.